would you assume a king in training would spend his time preparing for a royal throne? What kind of job would he have that would equip him for leading a nation? One thing's for sure, you wouldn't start looking in the fields surrounding the town of Bethlehem. This is a simple place, a humble place. Who would have thought that in a field like this, you would find a king? A king who would begin a dynasty and whose legacy would last for thousands of years. Good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. Uh, we're so grateful that you're here this morning. I want to welcome our campuses, Webster, Greece, Henrietta, and Aronacoit, those of you who are engaging with us online, and all of our guests here this morning. Thanks for being here at Northridge Church. And we're starting a brand new series this morning called Portraits of a King. And we did something a little bit unique in this series. We brought our spiritual formations team together. We brought our graphics team and video team together, and we brought our teaching team and we created this booklet. Hopefully you got one of these as you walked into one of our auditoriums. If you didn't, you want to make sure you grab one of these. If you're watching with us online, here's one of the perks of coming to one of our campuses. Um, we challenge you to come to one of our campuses, but you can get a hold of this online. Just go to northridgeequip.com, and there's a digital version of this as well that you can access. And what we've done in this, this booklet is you'll, you'll notice a couple things. You'll see sermon notes for all six weeks of the series. You'll notice your community group questions for all six weeks of this series. And then it's really just chalked full of background information, unique information, um, information to help you grow personally in your walk with faith. There's a Bible reading plan for you to walk with us through this series and read First and Second Samuel. And so when we crafted and created this booklet, we really had three goals in mind. The first one is maybe you're here at Northridge Church and... You know, you're new to faith. You're, you're not even sure about this whole Jesus and Christianity thing. And maybe this booklet is this first experience for you get to get to know God's word a little bit more, for you to understand how much he loves you. But, but secondly, maybe it's for you who, you know, you, you are a Christian. You've been walking with God, and, and this is just a tool for you to grow deeper in your relationship with God, to study his word and to grow in your knowledge of, who, the, the, of the Bible and God. But then thirdly, you know, community groups start this week. If you're not one in, check that box. Community groups will get you plugged in. They start this week, and hopefully this stirs up some dialogue, some questions that will really lead to conversation in your community groups for you guys to grow together, to apply the Bible, to build relationships, and to care for one another. And so we're diving into this series this morning. And when you think of this series, Portraits of the King, really what we're going to be doing is we're going to be zooming into two books in the Bible, First and Second Samuel. We're going to look at parts of both books. And, and just to give you a broader perspective of First and Second Samuel. You see, First and Second Samuel is, is written right at the time of about 1100 B.C. to 970 B.C. It's about 150 years of Israel's history, especially when it comes to setting up the monarchy. And in 1st and 2nd Samuel, really it focuses on three persons. The first one is Samuel the prophet, the guy who the both books are named after. And we're going to look a little bit into Samuel's life. The second is the first king of Israel. His name was King Saul. And we're going to look a little bit into his life. 
But really, the series is zooming in to this third character. We know him as King David, a man after God's own heart. And throughout the six weeks of the series, we're going to look at King David moments or portraits in his life, characters that he interacted with. And we're going to get to see some of those moments that made David, made him into a great king, a great leader. But we're also going to look into moments in his life that broke him, moments where he had to face the consequences of his sin, poor choices by even a godly man. And so we're going to start this series in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 16. The verses will be on the screen. You can jump there in your iPad, your tablet, or your phone, or your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use the Northridge Bible. It's going to be on page 226. 226. And really, this first verse really sets our scene for us. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, it says this. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of the son of his sons to be king. And so here we're going to set the scene. It's going to set us up for where we want to go this morning. We, we pick up this story and Samuel, this prophet, is mourning the existing king, the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And so we have to start by asking a question, why is Samuel mourning? He's mourning because God has begun the process of rejecting Saul as king. You might ask, why? Well, all you have to do is go turn the page to chapter 15. Because up to this point, Samuel, he anointed Saul as king. He anointed him as king, and up to this point in Saul's kingdomship, he was a good king. He was a godly king. He walked with God. He was obedient to God. But somewhere along the way, Saul decided that he didn't really need God that much. He decided that his way was better than God's way, and he started to make poor choices. And the greatest poor choice happened in chapter 15, where God gave him specific instructions. Saul, I want you to do this, and I want you to do it this way. And Saul thought his way was better, and so he chose differently. And God decided to reject him as king of Israel. In fact, this is what the prophet Samuel said to King Saul after his rebellion. It says this in verse, chapter 15, verse 26. It says, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And so we pick up this story with Saul being rejected as the king of Israel by God. And now Samuel is in pursuit to anoint the next king of Israel. And God gives him instructions. He says, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to find a man named Jesse. And one of his sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel responds to God's command. Verse 2, he says, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint from me the one I indicate. And so God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem, but Samuel has a hesitation. Samuel looks at God and he says, hey, I get you want me to find the next king. But what happens when the existing king finds out I'm looking for another king? He's going to kill me. Like, God, I, I, this doesn't seem like that great of a plan. Have you thought this one out? Because I might not make it to the new king because the old king might kill me before I get there. 
And how, how, how many times can we relate to Samuel where we do the same thing? We put the fear of man above the fear of God. I mean, how, how interesting is it that Samuel, he's, remember who he's talking to, he's talking to God, the creator of the universe, the most powerful being ever to exist, and he's afraid of a man's sword. He's afraid of what a man can do to him, not obedience to God. And how many times in life do we find ourselves in the same situation? We know what God has told us to do. We know God has called us to something and we're sitting there shaking in our boots because we're afraid of what people might say about us. We're afraid of what people might talk about us. And Samuel's right there. He's like, God, I, I get it. You want me to go find the next king, but I'm worried about man. Man, in life, so many times we put the fear of what people might think ahead of the fear of God, and we have to learn to twist that upside down. So Samuel finally agrees. God gives him a plan to overcome his own insecurities. And the story continues. Verse 6, it says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel makes this journey. He goes to Bethlehem. He finds Jesse. And as he gets there, he immediately notices the first son. His name was Eliab. And Eliab was just a straight hunk, let's be honest. He was a good-looking guy. He was probably built strong. And we know that because when Samuel looks at him, he says, Oh, surely that's the guy. I hope people think about me when I walk into the room like that. <laughs> you know? So Samuel, he's like, look at him. That's got to be the next king of Israel. And what I love about this part of the story is we get insight into how God thinks and what God looks at. I mean, don't you want to know the answer to that question? Hey, when God looks at me or when God looks at you, what is he looking for? I mean, don't we all want to know the answer to that question? And God gives it to us right in his holy word. Imagine that, right? Because Samuel finds Eliab and he says, there's the next king of Israel. And God says, whoa, hold on a second. He interrupts Samuel. He says, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking at the outward. You're looking at what he looks like and how built he is. Guess what, Samuel? That's not where God is looking. And it gives us insight. It says, for the Lord does not look at the outward appearance, but where does God look? He looks at the heart. And so we need to pause here and understand something about God. God values the unseen more than he does the seen. God values the things that we can't see more than the things that we can see. And we see this right in this passage. He says, you're looking at things that you can see, Samuel. I'm not looking at the outward. I'm looking at the heart. And here's where this gets difficult, because in our culture today, we value the outward more than we do the inward. Because guess what? The outward gets you recognition. The outward gets you the role. I mean, we spend so much time fixing all of this because guess what? We want to be in the movie or we want to be posted on Instagram and look good. That's, that's, that's what our culture says. The outward is way more valuable than the inward. And God flips the script and says, no, we're missing it. We're missing it. So the question is, where does God look? Well, God looks at the heart. And I'm a, I'm a skeptic by nature. 
And so when I read that, I, I think, okay, if God looks at the heart, why did he choose the heart? Like, why, why of all places did God decide to look at our hearts? And I think we all have to come to this conclusion. We have to understand this about the way God designed us, is your heart determines your direction. Your heart determines the direction of your life. It's the steering wheel. It's that force that guides you. Your heart makes you into the man or the woman that you are today. And the Bible gives us insight into this. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says this. It says, above all else. Let's just pause there for a moment. Above anything else in, in life, guard, protect, watch over your heart. Why? Listen to this. For everything you do flows from it. Man, that should be like, hello, wake up, call. Like, we should underline that in our Bible. We should highlight it. We should memorize it. Because the Bible is clear. It says, hey, above anything else in your life, you need to take care and you need to watch over and you need to guard your heart because who you are and the choices you make and who you become, it all starts right there. That's where it begins. That's why the Bible says, hey, we should hide God's word in our hearts. Psalms 119 verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As Christ followers, that's why it's so important to be in God's word, to study it, to meditate on it. Because when you allow God's word to shape your heart, guess what? If everything flows from your heart, why not put God's word in our hearts so God's word flows out of our hearts? That's why the heart is so important. Maybe some of you are parents today. Your parents. And you're trying to guide your children. And this is a, a huge shift in parenting, I think, today. And this is a, a shift that God's word teaches. And I'm learning this shift. Because I think a lot of parents today, what we do is we correct behaviors. We're the behavior police. When our kids act up, we correct the behavior. But I'm telling you today, if you want your kids to get it, and if you want to guide your kids, don't correct their behavior. Start shaping their hearts. Start shaping their hearts. Because when you get a child's heart and you push their heart to Jesus, that's when everything becomes alive. Because the heart is where everything flows from. In fact, as a Christian, when you become a Christian, when you say yes to Jesus, when you make Christ the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, God, in a split second, if your belief is actually real, God, in a split second, he sends the Holy Spirit. And guess where the Holy Spirit dwells? In your heart. Why? Because he's our advocate. He's our guide. And guess what? If God wants to guide our, guide our life, guess where he needs to go? Where everything in our life flows from? Our hearts. Man, I'm telling you, your heart is the most valuable piece of real estate on your body. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so we have to come to this conclusion now. If God is looking at our hearts if that's where God looks, we have to understand that what we see in people is different than what God sees. What we see in people is different than what God sees. Because, you know, you meet somebody, you go on a date, you're interviewing somebody. Guess how we judge people in our culture and from a humanistic perspective? We judge people based on what we can see. 
We judge people, the sad reality of our life today in our culture, in our world, is we judge people based on the cars that they drive, the homes that they live in, the color of their skin. We judge people based on what our eyes can tell us. And God says, he interrupts Samuel and he says, you got to stop that. You got to stop that because I'm not looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. So the story continues, verse 8, it says this, it says, Then Jesse called Abinadad and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? And so we just have this beautiful fashion show for Samuel going on here. <laughs> I mean, this is my second son, and this is my third son, and Samuel's like, no, no. Seven times. Seven times. This has got to be frustrating for Samuel. He's looking for the next king. The pressure's on him because God told him to find the next king. He's waiting on God, and here are seven good-looking, handsome, strong guys. Nope. It's not the one. And so he looks around and, and there's nobody left at the party. And so he just throws this random request out like, um, Jesse, do you have any more sons left? Because if you don't, I'm in trouble. And I love this part of the story. I absolutely love it. He asks this question, hey, do you have any more sons? And this is Jesse's response. He says, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. And man, I, I just love this part of the story because, you know, Jesse didn't even invite his youngest son to the party. He didn't even invite him. Hey, we're looking for the next king of Israel. And Jesse just assumed, hey, it's got to be one of these seven. David, you go, you go take care of the sheep. You know, someone's got to do it, David. And you're the youngest and probably the weakest. So, Go herd some cattle, you know, like take care of the sheep. And so David isn't even invited to the party. And, and culturally, that kind of makes sense. You know, in this culture, firstborn, order of birth was significant. The firstborn got the birthright. It was a significance. If you were the oldest, you held a lot in your hands. And so it makes sense for Jesse to invite some of his sons, his older sons, to the party. But I think we can relate a lot to Jesse in this story because I think we do the same thing with our own lives and with people in our lives is we have this tendency to leave the things that we don't like, things that we want to overlook, and we just say, hey, just, just hang out in the fields. And I would ask you this morning, what are you leaving in the fields of your life? What are you leaving in the fields of your life? I think we leave two things in our fields. The first one is I believe we leave our weaknesses there. Every single one of us today, I don't care who you are, we all have weaknesses, areas of our life that we do not like. And you know what we do with those areas? We try to cover them up. We try to push them to the back burner. We send them to the fields because we don't want anybody to see them at the party. We don't want anybody to know that they're a part of our lives. And you know what we do with our weaknesses? We push them to the back burner because we believe how in the world could God use that? And so we do it with our weaknesses. The second thing we do it with is people. Now, we all have that person in our life. Maybe it's in our community group. 
where we've been investing in them, we've been pouring our life into them, and they just don't seem to get it. You're like, ah, I've walked you through this like 12 times. How in the world are you still being rebellious? How in the world are you not getting it? It's so easy. And you know what we do with the pe those people? We send them to the fields. We say, ah, you know, God, I know you're powerful, but there's no way you can use him or her. And we put him in the fields. And that's exactly what Jesse did with his son, David. We're looking for the next king of Israel, David. And so you go take care of the sheep and the big boys will find the next king of Israel. And here he is sitting in the fields. And so Samuel says, hey, do you have any sons left? The youngest is still available. And so here's what Samuel said. He says, send for him and we will not sit down until he arrives. I love this, this verse. It says, go get him. And we don't know how long that journey would have taken maybe 15 minutes to the fields, maybe an hour to the fields to bring David back. But Samuel says something significant. He says, hey, while we go get David, no one is going to take a seat. We're all going to stand and wait. And I always wondered, why in the world are they standing? Like, hey, this could have been a long journey. Let's just chill. Let's grab a cup of water. You know, let's relax. But I think it gives us an indication of, about what's, what's about to come. And we see this in verse 12. It says, so he went for him and he had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, because this is the one. So David arrives on the scene, a young man who was left in the fields by his father, much like we leave our weaknesses and those people in our life in the fields. And I think we got to understand something about the things we leave in the fields. God might actually choose to utilize what you've been marginalizing. God may choose to utilize what you tend to marginalize, that thing that you overlook in your life or you've pushed to the back burner, that weakness that you want to avoid at all costs. You might actually be surprised that that's the very thing that God uses in your life. That person that you think, oh, there's no way God can use them. You might sit back and be like, wow, God, I didn't even believe you could do it. Because oftentimes God uses the things that we least likely think he can use and we get to watch his power in full display. And I think the reason why God uses our weaknesses and people that we don't think can be used is because he gets all the credit for it. We can't steal it from him. He wants the glory. And so he uses those places where he can get the most glory for. But there's a tension in this passage that I can't ignore either. Because, you know, we just spent so much time talking about how God looks at the heart. Focus on your heart. And then when David arrives on the scene, it says this about him. It says he was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. And I'm like, come on, God. I'm trying to, I'm trying to teach a message on your heart. And now you're talking about David and he's just a hunk of a man. And he walks onto the scene and everybody's like, wow, look at David. Why in the world did the Bible include that? I mean, God just spent so much time in his word talking about he doesn't look at outward appearances, and then he just gives us a full description of every muscle David has. <laughs> like, thanks a lot, Jesus. Thanks. This is awesome. But here's what I know about the Bible, is every single word is perfect and flawless and inerrant, so why in the world would God include this? And I think I've come to this conclusion, and this is my opinion, so don't take it for the word of the Lord. 
It's my opinion. It's shaky. But I think God included this is because, you know, as humans, we have this tendency to jump to extremes. I mean, it's like dieting, right? You know, we want to eat healthy. And, and so we don't just like slowly choose to eat healthily. We're like, I'm going vegan. <laughs> I'm not going to eat cheese. Good luck with that. It's terrible. Cheese is amazing. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Okay, you're with me. Good. And we jump to these extremes. And I, I think the reason why God included this is because I think for a lot of Christians, we hear the heart is the most valuable piece of real estate on your body. And so we neglect all our outward appearance. We let go of all that. And all we do is focus in on our hearts. And I believe God includes this is for us to understand the value is on our hearts, but there's still some significance of taking care of the temple God has given you called your body. There's importance in eating healthy and in trying to take care of the body God has given you. Going to the gym and eating healthy foods is what God wants for your body. And so we can't just neglect that at the cause of, of fully focusing on our heart. And that's why I believe he shows us what David looked like. It says David was glowing with health. And so it challenges us not only to take care of our heart, but our outward appearance as well. And so the story kind of winds down. Verse 13, it says this. It says, so, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And I really love where we kind of conclude because it says the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. And guess where God's spirit landed in David's life? Right in his heart. Right in his heart. So the question is, is, you know, as we look at the story, this is a historical story that's thousands of years old. And so how does that story translate into 2018? How do we take this story and move it to today? And I really want to give you two things, two things that I think all of us should learn from this story according to God's word. And the first thing is this, character always trumps competence. Character, which is who you are, always trumps competence, which is what you do. But here's where it gets a little tricky, because competence, the skills that you have, the things you do on a regular basis, that's what gets you paid. I mean, you think about it, as you grow in your skills, it gets you that promotion, it gets you that recognition. If you're the best surgeon in Rochester, that's going to get you people's recognition. If you're the best welder in Rochester, that's going to get you business. If you're the best coach or you're the best teacher or college student or whatever it is you do, if you're the best at it, it gets you recognition, it gets you status, and most importantly, it gets you paid. And so what we do in our culture and in our own lives is we focus so much on competence because competence provides results. It provides needs. It provides wants. And so we spend a majority of our time crafting our skills, our jobs to become the best. And that's a good thing, but it's a bad thing when you take your competence and you allow it to overcome your character. Because here's what I know about competence. As you get older, your competence will begin to fade. But I promise you, your character will always be there. It will never get old. 
And so character trumps competence. Here's what I would challenge you to do is focus more on who you are rather than what you do. Man, I think as we, if we just left here today and said, hey, I'm going to work on who God is crafting me to be. I'm going to work and learn, God, who do you want me to be? Mold me and, and, and make me into the person you want me to be. And focus on my character more than on what I do or the skills that I have. I think the second thing we can learn from this passage is God can and wants to use you despite your weaknesses. God can and wants to use you despite your weaknesses. And I know, I know what some people are going to say, Drew, you just don't know my weakness. You don't understand, Drew. I'm too old. How could God use me? My time is up, Drew. You don't understand, Drew. I'm, I'm just not the smartest guy on the block or gal on the block. And I've tried and, and, and I just my weakness is just glaring. It's in front of me. And we have every excuse in the book for God not to use us. I mean, we do. But I watched the Bible is, is chalked full of guys and girls who had every excuse not to be used by God, but God overcame their weakness. His power was made perfect in it. Think of a guy named Moses. God came to Moses in a burning bush and he says, hey, I want you to deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery. And you know what Moses said to God? God, I can't talk, I can't communicate, I stutter. Pharaoh's gonna laugh at me, God. You don't get it, find somebody else. And God looked at Moses and he said, you know what, that is your weakness, Moses. But there's gonna come a day when you stand in front of Pharaoh and you say, let my people go. And you're gonna get to watch on display God overcome your flaw and your weakness. And you're gonna see a move of God through you. This is what Corinthians says about our weaknesses, mine and yours. It says this in verse, chapter 12, verse nine, it says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That's you and that's me. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Not your strength, but your flaws, your insecurities, your weaknesses. God's power is made perfect. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness because I'll get to see Christ's power rest on me. What's the weakness you're hiding in the fields thinking, ah, God can't use that? You see, I'm a living and breathing example of this. You know, I told this to our church about two years ago. You might not know this about me, but I have dyslexia. And I remember growing up in middle school and high school, man, just struggling to, to read out loud because I would mix up words. And man, I, I remember when a teacher would ask me to do something in public, to read in public, it was like the most embarrassing experience for me. Because it took me like twice as long to read a, a paragraph as most kids. And even to this day, my wife and I will be driving down the road. And I'm kind of a weirdo. You know this already, obviously. I'm kind of a weirdo. Like to pass time while we're driving, I read signs out loud in the car. Yeah, I know. Judge me. Go ahead. It's fine. <laughs> And so I'll just read them out loud. And then it bugs my wife so much. And there's times where she'll look at me and she'll be like, Drew, 
I don't know if you know this, but you just read three out of four songs wrong. Like you said the wrong word. And it was like a four letter word, Drew. <laughs> and you know, so what I did growing up is because I struggled in that area, I just focused on my strengths. I was an athlete. I played four sports in high school and two in college. And so I just put all my energy and all my time into what I was good at because it made me feel good. It made me feel appreciated. It made me feel like I had a hope and a chance. And I avoided my weakness at all cost. And what's interesting is if you skip the tape of my life to today, do you know what I spend the majority of my time doing? Preparing and getting ready to read in front of thousands of people. And I, I can't tell you how many times I read the verses that I read to you. I read them like 30 to 40 times because I just don't want to sound embarrassing. I don't want people to think I'm stupid. And you know what? I'm not because every single Sunday I get to watch God work in my weakness and impact thousands of people's lives because I wasn't afraid anymore. And he can do the same for you. He did it for David. His dad left him in the fields and said, hey, the big boys will take care of this, David. You take care of the sheep. And God said, you know what, Jesse? You see your son you left out in the fields? I'm going to take him and I'm going to make him king over a nation. And that was small compared to what he did next. He said, I'm going to use his bloodline and I'm going to bring the savior of the world, King Jesus, through this young, overlooked, marginalized boy tending the sheep. He said, watch me. Everybody thinks he's weak, but I see he's strong. Because you know what David saw? You know what God saw in David? He didn't see the most talented person. He didn't see the most, the best shepherd in the world. You know what David saw? Or you know what God saw? He saw in David a heart that was moldable, a heart that could be shaped, a heart that could be used by God. You know what David's known as? He's known as a guy after God's own heart. That is why God picked David. So many of us, we spend so much time trying to be the best and we overlook our character. We'll skip corners and lose our character to become the best at something. And God says, you've got it wrong. Start here, start in your heart. Character should always trump competence. Your hands should never outweigh your heart. So today I would ask you, as we wind down, when God looks down at me, and when God looks down at you, what does he see? Let's pray. God, I'm, I'm so grateful that despite me and all my flaws and my weakness, you still choose to use me. And God, I know it's not because I'm talented or gifted, it's because your power is made perfect in my flaws and my weakness. And I know someone needs to hear that this morning. That in the midst of their weaknesses and the things they've left in the fields, you can use them and you can use them in mighty ways. But God, we recognize that it starts with our hearts. It starts with the preparation of, of you allowing you to mold and craft our hearts to be more like you. And so will you help us in that journey? 
In Jesus' name, amen.